Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, or you can simply turn the page in your order of service. It's there on page six, uh, Revelation chapter six for our Bible reading today. As you find that, um, many of you will be able to see from where you're sitting a large brass eagle at the front of church. Uh, We always need an eagle, don't we, in church? And as we come to a passage like this in Revelation, what we're about to read, you will think, is extremely strange uh, everything we're about to meet. But in fact, of course, actually it's not that strange. We, we had our call to worship from Exodus chapter 15. I wonder if you remember in the book of Exodus, God says to his people, chapter 19, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. If you read the book of Exodus, there is no eagle anywhere in the story as God rescues his people. Of course, it is just a picture, isn't it, of strength, of safety, of of care. God putting his people on his back and rescuing them, leading them out, out to the promised land. So that's what's happening in what we're about to read, Revelation. I'm going to try and explain these animals and creatures, and I think we'll see how good... God is to us in giving us words like this. So Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed with him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge? And avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal. 
I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Amen. May God bless his holy word to us. I want you to imagine this morning that you came to church to paint. Okay, so I want you to imagine instead of the order of service given out to you at the door this morning, Struan and others, Johnny and Ruth, welcome team, handed you paintbrushes at the door. And as they handed you the paintbrushes, they pointed you to this big white canvas here behind me up on the wall. And they said to you, what you're going to do today in church is put the whole of world history into a picture. You're going to paint it up on the white screen. Take a few moments to think and then paint. What do you paint? How do you sum up the whole of world history in one image? It can be done, actually. Sounds impossible, of course, doesn't it? Immediately your minds are racing, millennia of events and drama and people. One picture, one canvas behind me, really? Can you sum it all up in one image? What do you include? What do you leave out? Well, the good news, uh, you're all relieved you were handed an order of service, not paintbrushes. The good news is we're in John's portrait gallery. John has used his brush already, so you and I don't have to. But as I speak these next moments together, as I'm speaking, what I want to happen is my words to work like a projector. I want to put up there behind me for all of us to see what John is doing visually. And I want to put it up behind us verbally. As I speak, John, remember in this letter, John is unveiling the Lord Jesus to us. That's all the word revelation means, and unveiling. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. This is an unveiling of Jesus. Jesus the King. And the book of Revelation is simply lots of galleries with lots of different pictures of Jesus. You go to Aberdeen Art Gallery and it's not all in one room, is it? You move through different rooms with different themes, different levels, different emphases. And John is doing that for us here to to paint the Lord Jesus in words. John is using three things, numbers, animals, and objects. Numbers, animals, and objects. Put all of those things together, add an artist's visionary eye, And a picture speaks a thousand words. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, do you see it? Numbers, seven seals, animals, the Lamb, and objects. 
seals. They're all there, aren't they? Seven, a lamb, seals. And as we put that picture up there behind behind my head on the wall to look at, and, and we're staring at it like you do in an art gallery, he, here is what you are looking at, okay? Chapter 6, verse 1, you are looking at the lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember from chapter 5, he has just taken a scroll in his hand, a scroll handed to him by God his Father. And that scroll is the plan for the whole of human history. The whole of world history is in there, God's plan. But there are seven locks on that plan. That's what a seal was, just a lock that sealed it shut. Seven seals, the number of perfection. It means it is perfectly locked, completely locked. But this lamb, remember is able to open the seals one by one. Jesus has the key to all of history. It's all in his hand. He can execute God's plan for the world. And one by one, step by step, John is going to show us what Jesus is doing in the world. That's what's happening as these seals are unlocked. We're seeing how the Lamb rules and reigns in history. He's going to paint a picture of how Jesus is fulfilling all of God's purposes for the world. Now, now we've learned that already, haven't we, in the book of Revelation, that as John paints, we need words to understand the pictures. It's always the way in an art gallery, isn't it? Some art in the gallery is amazing. And most of it you can understand just by looking at it. But very often it is the little text down at the side of the picture that explains it. It's the the device in the ear and the, the, the thing you're holding in your hand as you walk around, the words that are explaining what you're looking at. And so here, it's not just images we're looking at, is that there are words that we need to listen to. Look at verse 1. I watched and I heard. I heard. There are three voices to listen to here as John paints his pictures. So we're going to use the voices, we're going to use the words to understand John's pictures. I'm going to give you three voices this morning. Number one, hear the cry of the creatures. The creature's voice, hear the cry of the creatures. Number two, feel the cry of the killed. Feel the cry of the killed. Number three, fear the cry of the condemned. Hear, feel, fear. That's what I want us to do, to listen, to feel, and to fear. Here's the first one. Number one, hear the cry of the creatures. The cry of the creatures. These first eight verses are dominated, aren't they, by four different creatures. These are the creatures from chapter 4 that are on all four sides of God's throne. And as John hears thunder booming in his vision, it is the voice of these creatures shouting one at a time, come. And as the creatures cry, the Lord Jesus unlocks the scroll. And to our astonishment, out of the scroll comes four horsemen. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, that's what they're known as. And here is where we look at these eight verses, don't we? These four horses, and and we think how weird this is. A horse, a rider, something given to them. Actually, it's really quite simple. 
Remember the lamb doing the opening of the seals is the slain lamb, the lamb who has died. And by the time you get to the sixth seal, look at the sixth seal in verse 12. All the description of the earthquake, the sun becoming black, the moon becoming like blood. It is clear in verse 12 that what Jesus is bringing in there is the end of the world, isn't it? Judgment. So what is happening here, friends, is that Revelation chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6 is a picture of what the world is like between the first coming of the Lord Jesus, his birth and death and resurrection, and his second coming at the end of time. Paint us a picture. John puts up there on the canvas a picture of world history between the first coming of the Lamb and his second coming. What happens in the world between the time that the Lamb is slain and the Lamb comes again in judgment? How do you put that in a picture? It's easy, says John, and he starts to sketch verse 2. Look at it. He, He draws a white horse. And then as we watch the canvas, a red horse appears, verse 4. Verse 5, a black horse. Verse 8, a pale horse. Look, says John, I want you to imagine the story of the world as the story of four horses galloping through time. Then he paints a rider onto each horse, and each rider has something different in his hand. Verse 2, a white horse, its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. Verse 3, the red horse, its rider permitted to take peace from the earth. A sword was given to him. Friends, I wonder as you stare at it, as, as, as we take in that this is the story of world history. Can you see what John is doing? Can you see what he's painting? You've got one picture, one canvas, the story of the world. Can you see what it is? It is the story of conquest, war famine, and death. That's it, isn't it? Those are what the four horses represent. Horse one, conquest. Horse two, war. Horse three, famine. Horse four, death. John is saying that here is Jesus taking the lid off reality. He's pulling the curtains back. He's using wild galloping horses as a way of describing what 2,000 years of conquest and war and famine and death feels like and looks like. We do this all the time, don't we? A couple of years ago, what was the the storm that swept through through Europe called the beast from the east? Something terrible is coming. We use an animal word to describe it. John says you look at 2,000 years 2,000 years of pain. The only way to describe it is to imagine wild horses stampeding through your life, bringing in their train, conquest, war, famine, and death. Look, friends, here we sit this morning together as a church family, and I, I guess although we're all pretty comfortable, actually for some of us, not all of us, some of us In our lives, this is the very first time we've started to live through something like John describes. We're living through a pandemic, up close and personal. The the pandemic helps us to see this. John says you can, you can 
put your camera on 2,000 years, press click and take a photo of 2,000 years. And in that photo, you will see four things stand out. You will see, verse 2, there are always some nations conquering other nations. Verse 4, there are always some people slaying others. Verse 5 and 6, there are always some people getting richer than others and some people unable to pay the bills. See, that that's the point of the language in verse 6. A voice saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. The, the, the point of the language is that a quart of wheat for a denarius is like nipping across the road to Morrison's after church and having to pay 79 pounds for a loaf of bread. It is inflation on a massive scale is what happens in famine, isn't it? And yet, while you're paying 79 pounds for your loaf of bread, the rich are knocking back the Chardonnay like it's tap water. It's always what happens in the world, isn't it? A pandemic strikes and the shutters come down and the shops are closed on one part of town, but in the West End... The Porsches and the Ferraris all have 2021 license plates. It happens. How does it happen? I I have no idea. I don't know how it works, but it's true, isn't it? COVID has made our billionaires richer and our poor poorer. And then you keep looking at the picture, you get to verse 7, and as if it wasn't bad enough to cap it all, cap it all off, you see death rampaging through the world and hell following after. I want to say this, friends, as we look at the book of Revelation, as we look at chapter 6, very important to see that these are not predictions of literal things still to take place in, in the future. I want to assure you, you are never literally going to see a white horse at some point in world history. And then in another century, a red horse. In another century, a different color horse. No, this is one picture of what life is like in every day, in every age, in every part of world history until Jesus comes again. This is the world in picture form. What did Jesus himself tell us? You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. All that is happening in Revelation chapter 6 is the Lord Jesus is repeating himself, using those words again, but this time in picture form. Do you know, friends, it's been estimated that in the last 4,000 years, the last 4,000 years, there has been less than 300 years without a major war. In 4,000 years, we have had less than 300 years without a major war happening somewhere in the world. Somebody has said, peace is merely that brief, glorious moment in history where everyone stops to reload. Isn't that right? It's what we all do to each other, isn't it? Catch our, we simply catch our breath long enough to spoil the glorious sunset. 
our first harsh words of the day often come even before breakfast, don't they? The pristine day lies ahead of us. How long does it take for us to spoil it? War, bloodshed, suffering, death. That's what you would have to put up there on the screen, isn't it, if you were painting? If I asked you to paint the history of the world. So so let's keep layering the picture here as we move through this. Let's add more to the picture and then we'll start to apply it to us a little bit more. Number one, hear the cry of the creatures. They're, they're painting for us a world of pain. But now number two, friends, feel the cry of the killed. Feel the cry of the killed. The creatures are not the only voice here. This is the Christian dead. You get to verse nine. The Christian dead, those who are killed for belonging to the Lord Jesus in world history, martyrs for the Lamb. When you get to verse 9 now, as you look at it, the sound of galloping hooves just recedes into the background, doesn't it? And now we hear instead human voices. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Do you know that more Christians suffered and died for their faith in the 20th century than in all the other centuries combined? Somebody has worked out, I don't know how you do this, somebody has worked out that in the 21st century, somebody dies for being a follower of Jesus in this world every three minutes. A new martyr every three minutes. That's the message of the fifth seal, isn't it? Do you see how it works in verse 9 as, as Jesus turns another key in the lock, as he breaks open another seal, as, as the curtain comes up on life in this world to show us what it is really like. In this world as we know it, now in verse 9 we discover that within the general class of people who die in seals 1 to 4, within the general class of people who die. In seal five, we discover there is a type of bloodshed the world ignores, but which is very, very precious to God. The death of his people. All death is evil, isn't it? Of course it is. All death is a sign of the curse, but the death of Christ's people for being his people Well, John is saying that is one of the most significant things that can ever happen in the whole of human history. In the Old Testament, the blood of sacrificed animals, you you brought your animal to the altar, the, the animal was laid on it and sacrificed on it. Do you know that under the altar, the blood was caught in a basin? Underneath the altar, a basin caught the blood. The the blood dripped into it. It it was precious. It shouldn't be wasted. Look at verse 9. Where are the souls of those slain for the word of God? Under the altar. Do you know how precious God's children are to him? Psalm 56, you know it. You have collected all my tears 
in your bottle. He holds the tears our eyes have cried. It's as if here John is showing us, isn't he, that he holds the blood his people have shed. Not one of his people falls to the ground without him knowing. Did you know that, friends, as you watched those awful images years ago, those Egyptian Christians forced to kneel on the beach, lined up in their orange suits, And they kneeled in the waves, didn't they? And one by one, their throats were slit. See what John is saying here? No waves on earth can wash their blood away. No waves wash their blood away. Oh, under the altar in heaven, there they are. The very place, the altar, the very place where the Lord Jesus has placed his own blood. Under there is all the people slain for him. So look at this again, friends. Verses 9, 10, 11. Here is where we begin to realize this is not just a picture of four horses running amok through the centuries. Four out-of-control horses causing carnage wherever they go. No, look at verse 11. Isn't this remarkable? The martyrs were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. See what they're told? Martyrdom happens all the time in all the earth. And Jesus says yes, and there is a fixed number of them. Did you know that? Why are we waiting for Jesus to come back? Why the delay? Why are we waiting? Because the martyrs in heaven are waiting for their complete number to arrive. God has fixed the number. He knows what it is. He knows when we'll get there. Brothers and sisters, here is the start of the application for us this morning. Can you feel, not hear, but feel the cry of the killed? Do you feel it? What, What can you feel in their words? Here's what I think you can feel. We know who is in control, and it's you, Lord. They know who's in charge, don't they? Verse 11, they are told to wait a little longer. Just wait a little while. It's what somebody says when they're in charge, don't they? Just wait. But look at what they cry in verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, Oh, sovereign Lord, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, O Lord? How long? Uh, Our family record with this question is about 300 meters. Uh, I can't remember where it was we were going or when. uh, When we used to live at the top of Cairncry Road, I remember one occasion the whole tribe bundled into the car. We buckled everybody in. Everybody's been to the toilet. We've checked everything. Yep, we're ready to go. Cars loaded, 27 CDs at the ready. We pull out onto Cairncry Road. We make it to the roundabout at the top of North Anderson Drive, past Murdo's, and the voice floats to your ears. Are we nearly there yet? How long? How long? Why does the child ask the question? It's because they know that you know. 
you're in charge, and they don't know what you know. They can't see what you can see. Children, they, they, they can't tell Dainston from Donegal, can they? They, they? they just ask because they trust you. And they know you've got the power to end this nightmare of this 20-minute car journey. You've got the power to end it if you so will. Look, look who they're crying to in verse 10. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true. Isn't it because of who God is, who Jesus is? Take that verse in, friends, in a world of bloodshed and pain. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true. Oh, ruling Lord, oh, Lord the King, whose character is perfect and right. Do you see it? They're, they're asking the question of the person who is morally different from all this evil in the world, all that's been inflicted on them. And, and they're asking the question of the person who is relationally superior to everybody who has inflicted it on them. He is the sovereign. And this is all in his hands. And in fact, friends, this is all the way through these verses. This is actually what John wants us to see. Go back and look at verse 2 again. Ask yourself the question now, who is in charge of the horses? Behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown, look, was given to him. He came out conquering and to conquer. Look at the next horse. Out came another horse, verse 4, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Verse 8, its rider's name was death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over the earth. Remember what the Lord Jesus said to Pontius Pilate on trial? On trial for his very life before him, you would have no power over me unless it were given to you from above. Brothers and sisters, I simply want to encourage you again today. Come what may, the Lamb wins. Come what may, the Lamb wins. I want to give you two things not to do. Do not be alarmed. This will always be so until the end. Do not be alarmed. And do not be fooled. The lamb alone can save and win. Do not be alarmed. You know, we always think, don't we, that we, we are in the worst period of world history. We always think, don't we, things are not like they used to be. Not like the good old days. Things are getting worse. And yet, no matter how much we read the Bible, we forget that another picture for all of this, another picture that the Lord Jesus gave us for all of this is, do you remember he said it's like the whole of human history is like a woman in labor about to give birth. The whole of creation is groaning and screaming, crying out in birth pains for what is about to come. Did you know that one in 600 women, one in 600 women only discover they are pregnant at the moment of labor beginning? Now, if you're not expecting a baby, it's one thing to discover you're pregnant, isn't it? But if you're not expecting a baby, it is another thing to discover you are in labor. I think to put it very mildly, you would be alarmed. 
Christian friend today, you are living in millennia of birth pains. You're living in it. Your life from start to end is birth pains. Here you sit today and your heart is sore. Some of you, I know it is very sore. Part of the curse from Genesis onwards is that God has allowed peace to be taken from the earth, isn't it? Verse 4, peace taken from the earth. You always thought you would have your health and now it's broken. You always thought you'd have your family and now they're gone. Death has come riding in. Part of the curse is that God has set death as a boundary line, hasn't he, on all our idolatry. We will die. Don't be taken by surprise by these things, John is saying. You, you know the picture of world history. Don't be alarmed. You've been to church this morning. You've stared at the picture. And secondly, friends, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Never think someone else can save you. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge? You see it? You will judge. You, only Jesus the judge can save. We always think someone else will save us, don't we? We always do. And if you don't believe me, just find online the election debate that's run twice, BBC and STV. Listen to our party political leaders. If you don't believe me that we think someone can save us apart from Jesus, listen to their words. Just stop and read that next election leaflet that drops through your door. What are they all offering? Salvation, recovery, health, education, economy. Choose us and we'll give you your life back. Friends, in a, in, a, in a few weeks' time, friends, vote. But vote, please, with a spring in your step and joy in your heart. For at the end, the Lamb wins. The Lamb rules. You know, John Chapman, uh, the Australian evangelist, uh, a wonderful character, a few years ago before he died, He said that the book of Revelation is a book for stupid people and for old people. He said it's for stupid people because it just keeps saying the same thing every single chapter over and over again. The lamb wins. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that again today. And I'll need to hear it next Sunday. So will you please tell me if I ever stop saying that to you and if I ever stop believing it, if you see it being worked out in my life, in despair or sorrow or, or, or departure from Christ, never stop saying to me and to each other, the Lamb wins. And John Chapman said it's a book for old people because the whole way through it, everybody is just speaking in a loud voice. All the way through. Well, here's one last voice to listen to. I want to finish with this. Verses 12 to 17. We need to hear this. Voice three, fear the cry of the condemned. Fear the cry of the condemned. It is a gruesome ending, isn't it? Many, many preachers, many churches want to edit these verses out. But John wants us to fear the cry of the condemned. Let's read them again. Verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, 
I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Some of you will remember that a few years ago, one of our IPC ministers in England died tragically on a beach in England when the cliff face fell on him. It was an awful incident. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? Anything worse than that, dying in that way. But that is what John sees here, isn't it, in his vision? It is possible to know the face of God and the wrath of the Lamb. It is possible to know that they are so terrible that actually you cry out for the mountains to fall on you. Can you imagine that? Listen to Robert Ingersoll. He was a 19th century philosopher. He said this, the idea of hell is born of revenge and brutality on the one side and cowardice on the other. I have no respect for any human being who believes it, and I have no respect for any man who preaches it. I dislike this doctrine. I hate it. I despise it. I defy this doctrine. The doctrine of hell is infamous beyond all power to express. I have no respect for any man who preaches it. Who, who is preaching it here? Who is saying these words? Isn't it Jesus himself? The kindest, most gentle, greatest, most gracious man who ever lived. These are his words. See, look, that, that man, Robert Ingersoll, he's a philosopher, isn't he? These are the words men and women write in the comfort of their studies, usually in those brief moments of peace in world history while everybody's paused to reload their weapons. It is not the world that most people experience and live in. Do you remember PC Andrew Harper? 28th of August, 2019, PC Andrew Harper got caught in a towing strap attached to a car. And an 18-year-old and a 17-year-old in the car dragged him for over a mile along a country lane. Remember reading, reading about it? You'll have seen it on TV. He died totally naked apart from his socks and boots and some shredded remnants of his trousers. What, what did PC Andrew Harper's young wife and parents and friends and family call for? What did they call for? Judgment. Justice. I don't remember society crying out for freedom for those boys. Let, let them go. Just a prank that went wrong. They murdered a man, a good man, a man who both in uniform and character was there to protect and to serve, a man who deserved dignity and respect and protection. Friends, 
what would have happened in society if it had been, well, let's say Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, caught in that toe strap? The Queen, what would it have been if it was her? What would the world have said if somebody like that had been dragged to to their death? I suspect we would still be recovering from the trauma, from the shockwaves reverberating around the world when, when somebody so great is treated so appallingly. Brothers and sisters, do you notice here, John is very deliberate in his language, isn't he? Verse 16, whose wrath is kindled here? Whose wrath? Verse 16, the lamb. Do you see it? The lamb. Not, not just the judge. Oh, it, it's one thing to anger the judge, isn't it? And, and that's what we have all done. We have committed high treason the world over, haven't, haven't we? We were given a paradise and we trashed it. We were meant to be gardeners and we vandalized it. But more than that, friends, now at the center of the universe, John says, at the center of the universe, there is a bleeding lamb. A lamb who shed his blood for his people. And to spurn him, to spurn that, to ignore him, to reject him, to throw it back in his face. Is there any crime worse than that? Do you know that the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ is proof positive that humanity will murder its maker given half a chance? And so at the end, friends, oh, the wrath of the Lamb. I love what Augustine said. You want to hide from God? Then run to God. The only way you can hide from Him is to run from Him. How can you hide from Him who fills the entire universe? If you get on the wings of the morning and you go to the uttermost parts of the sea, you cannot get away from Him. Rocks and mountains, the very mountains of the earth falling on you will not hide you from him. If you want to hide from a God who is angry with us because of our sins, the only way to hide from him is to run to him. As he comes to you in Jesus, his son, the bleeding lamb, arms outstretched to embrace you on the cross, Arms outstretched to enfold all who come to him. Friends today, will you do that? You sinners seek his face whose wrath you cannot bear. Find the shelter of his cross and seek salvation there. Amen.